Welcome to Vet Voices, a podcast produced by Warner Enterprises, where average is for other people. Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, let your voice be heard on Warner's Veteran Podcast. Now buckle up and get ready for the host of Vet Voices, Greg, Johnny, and Adam. Charlie Endorf is joining us today to discuss his time in the military, discuss his time at Warner. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, Charlie, our senior professional driver with more than 5.3 million accident-free miles. So uh, before he drove those 5 million plus miles, he was also in the U.S. military. And that's what we're going to, uh, that's where we're going to jump in today. So Charlie, give us the rundown on your service. When did you join? What branch? What what did you do? All that good stuff. Well, Adam, uh, funny story to that. I lived in a little town of Dakin, Nebraska, and we were playing cards one afternoon, and one of the guys a couple of years older than me uh, sat down at the table and he said, Charlie, he says, you need to go down and sign up for the draft. In those days, you had what you could volunteer yourself up to the front of the line at that time, uh, the draft was consisting of over 40,000 soldiers a month. So uh, it was easy to move up to the front because you had so many guys that didn't want to go. And so up to that point, I did not want nothing to do with the military. I was kind of somewhat afraid of it. And so I, it just something hit me that day, and I thought, you know what? That don't sound like a bad idea. Knowing you're probably going to get drafted anyhow, why not just go with somebody from home? So I went down the next day to sign up for the draft, and the lady told me we have two dates available, March 12th and February something. And I said, no, I don't want to go in February yet. But I'll take the March 12th. So I got on. Uh, I got drafted that day. I hadn't even taken a physical up to that point. So I come up to Omaha on the bus um, with a little too much to drink. <laughs> and so I got up, took my physical, and flunked my physical. Um, and I said, why? So we got high blood pressure. I said, what causes high blood pressure? He said, alcohol. I said, well, it's going to be the same next time if you bring me back. So <laughs> let's just go and get it done today. So I, I had to sign a waiver of some sort and flew up to Minneapolis and then out to Seattle where I took my basic training at, uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. And so anyhow, this friend of mine from, from hometown, he stayed with me all the way through basic training. Uh, we basically bunked together. I mean, uh, when I say together, he was on the top and I was on the bottom or vice versa. I don't remember anymore, but uh, stayed with uh, him for six months or six weeks, eight weeks. And uh, so from then I got uh, uh, assigned uh, an MOS of uh, infantry. And so how in the hell did I get infantry? Well, I found out that all those tests you take the first uh, three or four days, uh, reception week, um, you, uh, you answer a lot of questions. And I had a lot of outdoor questions, you know, love sports, like to hunt and fish and all that stuff. And so they must have figured I was going to be a good infantryman. So that's how I got chosen for infantry. And then I just moved down the street in Fort Lewis for the AIT training, advanced infantry training. And spent another six, seven weeks doing that, and then got my 30-day leave. So early 1970s? Uh, no, this would have been in 1968. 68, okay. March 12, 68, yep. And how long did you have in the Army? How, All four together? Four years? 
altogether, uh, well, I spent, uh, you know, basic in AIT in Fort Lewis. Then I got a two-week leave, stayed uh, over in Vietnam for uh, 11 and a half months. I was one of the first 25,000 that were withdrawn uh, in 1969 from Vietnam. So I got out two weeks early and come back and then was stationed uh, at Fort Meade, Maryland uh, in a, I don't know what you want to call it, kind of an armored cavalry division. I have no idea why I got put there, but anyhow, that place made me so upset, I decided to try for an early out college. And so I, w I applied for that and got out of the service, uh, I think about two months early, so I could go to college. Okay. I didn't know they did infantry training ever at Fort Lewis. I've been there a couple of times and had no clue that uh, they did that. I would imagine, though, with the numbers, the 40000 a month for drafting, uh, they were just sticking it, trainees everywhere just to get them through the pipeline. I'm sure it was. You know, and again, Adam, because of your age, you know, things have changed probably over that amount of years that, uh, you know, maybe maybe I, guys like me has decided they didn't want to do infantry anymore. <laughs> you know, I still, the 11 and a half straight months uh, in Vietnam, I know that at the height of Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a lot of folks in the Army that were doing 12 months in Iraq, 12 months in Afghanistan, 12 plus. Um, but I, I'm fortunate because I made the right call and joined the Air Force. Uh, I think the longest I've spent in theater at one time is five, maybe five and a half months, uh, which 11, twice that just seems daunting to me. Uh, that's a lot of time in theater. I would imagine as an infantry guy, you are moving around quite a bit. Is that accurate? Well, yeah. And, you know... You make a good point, Adam. Uh, time is goes fast. You know, when you're busy, I mean, take a look at your work day. If you're busy all day, it's all of a sudden it's the end of the day. And we were doing something all the time. Uh, we would go out on a three, four-day operation. Uh, we couldn't go much longer than that because we were in so much mud that we got a lot of foot rot and boils on your feet. And so you had to come into camp to, to get cleaned up and get your skin back together again by airing it out. You couldn't do that out on when you were on patrol someplace. So, yeah, but the time went fast. It, it didn't seem like a year. And, you know, I was fortunate, too, coming from a small town in Nebraska uh, where everybody knows everybody. That whole town at some point in time wrote me a letter while I was over there. That's I awesome. had a lot of home support. Charlie, uh, your friend that uh, you went to basic training with, uh, did he make it over into country with you? No, but <laughs> funny story, he, he went down to Texas, and all he talked about is, Endorf, you ain't coming home. Uh, so he, we, the, we laugh about that today. Yeah, what part of the country did you, where, did, where was your theater of operations? I was in Benoit Province, which was uh, down by Saigon. The biggest enemy that we fought was the NVA that come down through uh, Cambodia and Thailand and tried to attack Saigon from the south. And, and we dealt, we didn't deal with uh, long-term battles. We dealt more with booby traps and snipers mm. and a lot of booby traps. It's just wild to hear some of the stories that have come out of Vietnam. I, I'm an Iraq and Afghanistan vet, right? But the warfare has changed so fundamentally much uh, my granddad is a Vietnam vet, uh, no longer with us, but he, uh, I, I'm going to butcher the job title, but some type of forward air controller to where he would get into a unarmed 
Cessna type aircraft and go fly low level tree line type missions in just seeing where the enemy was at so that they could call in air power to prevent having the infantry have to go in and clear whatever area it was. And I just, it's tough for me to imagine signing up for the, oh yeah, I'll get into that Cessna where my only ability to fire back is to stick my M16 out the window uh, and go look for bad guys to shoot at me so that somebody else can come and take care of that problem. It's just wild to think about some of that difference between then, which was really 50 years ago, a little bit more, uh, and today it just seems like such a huge shift. Well, Adam, did you see the enemy uh, shooting at you? No. Every time I've ever been shot at, cover cover of darkness and had mortars and rockets. Yeah, that, we, we faced that too. We never saw the enemy. We we would see him once, you know, call it an airstrike, and then you go search that area and there was bodies laying around. But to actually see them shooting at you, they would shoot from the jungle while we was out in the rice paddy. So we were an open target, and you just couldn't see through that thick jungle. Right. That, you know, So you never saw the enemy. Hmm. So a couple years in, what rank did you get to? When I got, uh, okay, after boot camp, uh, they give you a PFC, a private, uh, it's an E3 in the Army. And so I went over there as a PFC, and I wasn't there, but maybe two months, and they jumped me up to a spec four. Going over there, you always gained rank faster than if you'd been stateside or in a peace zone, you know. But I, I got my sergeant stripes, E5, uh, I think it was like five months maybe when I was over there. That's wild. And so, you know, I, here I am, a 19-year-old buck sergeant. <laughs> you know, the pay was good. I got, I got $326 a month. Um, you know, for <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. I don't think that covers the basic allowance for subsistence these days with families. Like just the small amount they give you. That's it's just. But again, I mean, time, time, time value of money, right? Yeah, yeah. So the shoot the sergeant stripes that quickly. My my college roommate was a 82nd Airborne guy, and they always talked about how their fast burners would make E7 in seven years but it would take every every bit of that seven years to get through uh through up to e7 craig what'd you get out as i got out as an e6 okay yeah i i didn't know anybody that got uh that made e7 inside of seven years and that was that's that's pretty hard to do so that was a pretty exceptional individual that was able to do that um you know you know, most of the guys that go through special operations, special training, you know, will make rank faster as they complete schools and get more military education um, to make that uh, uh, in seven years is pretty hard. And you were in for like 20 years to get <laughs> E6, right? <laughs> I was in for four years and made E6, buddy. Thank you. Well, I figured they probably use that E6 as a way to get you to go for four more. Well, they wanted to, and then I was like, no, that's, I, you know, was feeling a different pull, and so I... It was it was time to get out and 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 try to do something else and maybe start a family and do that kind of stuff. So that's definitively what they do on the officer side. Is hey, I think I might get out. Do you want major? <laughs> no, not not really. <laughs> yeah, that's a temptation, you know. Well, Charlie, tell us about some of the people that you met while you were over there. <clears throat> Anybody in, that you can remember well, that was kind of a special memory? Uh, yeah, I, I think 
uh, Dennis Erlinson, a guy from northern Iowa, was probably one of my best friends over there. And probably my, my best friend was uh, uh, come in as an E, uh, what do they call it, NCO sergeant. He got buck, uh, buck sergeant over here in the States, and then they sent him over there. We call him instant NCO. That's what we called him. <laughs> Kenny Fulgham from Mississippi. And that was, that was my best, longest-lasting friendship I had. I mean, you, you're friends with all these guys because you're sure. brothers. You yeah. know, you, you sleep and eat together, and, and you're in this, you know, we're all in this together. So, uh, but, but Kenny was, was a very good friend of mine, and, and we got out together. A funny story, when we landed in uh, Seattle, when we come back, um, we wanted the cab driver to stop at a bar so we could get something to drink. And there was three of us out of the five weren't old enough to drink yet. <laughs> so got to the airport, and I told Kenny, I said, you know, I think you got two uh, IDs, don't you? And he said, yeah. I said, we look a lot alike. And so anyhow, I, uh, he loaned me his I, one of his IDs, and we go up to the bar, and guess who got checked for <laughs> he did. Too funny. I was fine. Yeah, too funny. Well, uh, to finish that story up, though, how close of friends we were, we had lost contact. He, when I come back and I was in Washington, or he was in Washington, D.C., and I was at Fort Meade, Maryland, just outside of uh, Washington, I drove down to see him. He was at Fort Lee, uh, where they do the all the military funerals and things. And so I went down there to see him. He was still married at that time. And I, the marriage must have not went well because they ended up divorcing. And I think through his own depression, and that's me thinking that he re-upped to go back to the military. So he went back for a second tour, and we kind of lost touch after he come back because he got his leg blowed off mm. uh, at the knee. And so when he come back, we stayed in touch for a while. For some reason or other, we lost touch. Then for 30 years, we didn't talk to one another. And uh, one day my niece showed us how to do a body people search, you know, on, on a computer, and she found him, not to my knowledge, of course. And so we connected back up again and became very good friends. And then in, in 2003, uh, my wife and I bought uh, four football tickets for Nebraska Southern Miss football game down there and went down to Jackson and picked up him and his girlfriend, and we went to football game, spent a couple of days together with him down there, and, and he died about a year later uh, from some other issue that had nothing to do with his leg but uh, that was that was my best friend and through that uh here's where i think it gets good his girlfriend at that time called me one day to tell me that his mother was uh you know wanted to talk to me and so i contacted her and we probably talked to one another every month for two or three years mm. and then she called me again one time and said mom's getting bad health so she always wanted to meet me and my wife. And uh, so I made arrangements to thank good for Warner. He got me a load down to Texas and over to Jackson, Mississippi. And I got to visit her at the hospital. And uh, I walked up to her, and she didn't know me, of course. And, and I talked. And uh, so I got to visit with her a little bit. And it, it was a short visit because she was emphysema so bad she couldn't breathe which talking takes your air away. Sure. And uh, only to find out it was the next afternoon she died. Hmm. Well, I bet it was very special to her to get to 
spend some time with you in person. Well, and, and, and through that, then I got to know his other two brothers, and I stopped in Billings, Montana, to visit with one of them one time. And then the other one, who I still stay in touch with, he's almost 80 years old, and uh, we kind of stay in touch as a family. And I've got their family picture in my office at home. It's a neat family. Hmm. So let's go back to that Nebraska game. Uh, I've been a Nebraska resident now for, I don't know, more than a few years, and I've heard rumors that at one point in time we had a winning football team. Did, <laughs> did we win back in 2003? Yes, we did. Okay. All right. Fair. Talk to us a little bit about a couple of years in the Army, uh, wanted to go to college, got out. How did college go? What happened after college? Well, uh, you know, I wanted to get out of that unit so bad that I w- was going to go to college because prior to that, college was never on my mind. But to, to get out of that unit, I, I wanted to go. So we applied, and I got out, and I went to Fairbury Junior College for two years, and I come up three hours short of graduation from junior college. And that was my fault because I failed to write a, a report on something. You know, Mrs. Brown, she, she's passed away now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, no, I went through college, and I wanted to get into the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And so after college there, I was going to have to either go to UNO here in Omaha or Kansas State University. Mm. And for some reason or other, because I didn't get along in college all that well, I just chucked it and had a chance to drive a truck for a local guy down there in Fairbury. But the college experience was unique because here I was uh, at this time, I'm 21 years old now, and I'm with a bunch of squeaky 18-year-old kids that don't have a clue. No idea. No. At all. No. And, Never been and out of state. Are. Yeah. And I, I Combat was o- veteran. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, o- you know, I didn't consider myself a, a grown-up adult, but I was compared to the kids. And no no reflection on them. That's just who they was, you yeah, know. I mean, they, the they couldn't help that. Yeah. But I, I, it, I really struggled through college just because of the... And I made some good friends down there, but it was that was a different experience. It's hard to go back to school when you've been out yeah. for two years, especially I, seeing what you've seen. Yeah, at that during that period of time, right? I was never a good student to begin with. I find that <laughs> easy to believe. <laughs> so you said before go, making the choice to go to college that you really wanted to get out of that unit. Well, talk to me about that. Any any particular reason other than? just didn't like what you were doing, or? Well, when I reported to that unit after my 30-day leave, I walked into the first sergeant's office, and the guy gets up and he looks at me. He's short little, Eddie Hoffer was his name, and he just looked me over like he was body searching me, you know. And he said, oh, no Purple Hearts. Hey, we got us a good one here. Because everybody in that unit there had some kind of a Purple Heart. And so they was looking at me as, as a healthy human being. And so here I was in an armored cavalry unit. What am I doing in an armored cavalry unit? I was infantry. I don't know nothing about a tank. Right. I can remember taking these tanks across the street, and I'm supposed, because I'm a sergeant, you know, I'm supposed to be the leader of this tank, and I didn't call for a road guard out there in the street and and there was a colonel or somebody of a high ranking down there and just just chewed me out for not having a road guard out there you'll win that fight between a car and a tank every time <laughs> <laughs> not too worried about it yeah well i kind of told him i, I not know between how to, a colonel 
I said, I know how to kill people. I don't know. I don't know how to drive a tank, you know. So, anyhow, it was it was no big deal, but I it just fell out of place. There. Right. The, and the it, Purple Heart comment is funny because I can every single person I've talked to that has had a Purple Heart would willingly give it back to not go oh, through that experience again. Yeah, I, that that's my th- you know that I look at uh, to go to today, uh, Adam. I, I see people that are getting uh, medical disabilities. I'm getting a medical disability due to uh, the the cancer I have. However, I look at me, and then I look at a guy that's got his legs blowed off. Yeah, and uh, that's to me that's not fair. Agreed. And yeah. it's funny because I I just filed for my VA disability. Sure. I, I'm I'm getting out here soon, so filed for it, and I felt almost to the point that I was sleazy because I was filing for it. There's some legitimate health issues there. But it's again, it's not. I have both of my legs. I have both of my arms. It's hard, it's tough to get over that. Somebody else has it worse thing, so I shouldn't bog down the system with me because it's just me, which is weird. Well, generally, totally we, we look them. at things in reverse, you know. Uh, go ahead, Greg. No, I was just gonna say that's exactly. I remember when I got out, and you know, having uh, been in an airborne unit, uh, it was very easy for people to. Uh, go down to the VA and get signed up and 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 automatically get qualified um, just based on the number of jumps that you've made to uh, be eligible for uh, disability and and you know right wrong or indifferent I always felt uh, guilty uh, you know about that and so I, I, I never did it and so I never got into the system um, and you know quality of care luckily for me hasn't been an issue but um, you know, I, I can see where that is something that just, you know, for people um, that have served and don't come back with a horrific visible injury, um, it's hard to make that, you know, it's hard to make that adjustment or admission that, uh, you know, there may be other things uh, at play or, or wrong. Well, you know, and, and you talk about a, a, a physical where you can see the disability. The thing that I struggle with this uh, you know, they got this PTSD thing today, and you can't see that. Uh, I didn't have any problem. Uh, when I come home, I left the war there. And to this day, that's the way I look. I don't talk about it unless I'm asked about it. Yeah. And so I don't see people that have that problem. I understand that people do. And I, I made my own conclusion as to why that is in, in some cases. But you can't judge everybody equally when it comes to that invisible issue. And I think that one of the one of my favorite episodes of this podcast, we had Steve who works in logistics on the podcast and he was in Afghanistan, uh, got blown up by a suicide uh, bomber, ultimately resulting in a TBI, uh, traumatic brain injury, which led to the follow on He's got some, and I knowing him, he's comfortable with me sharing the story, and it's also on the episode of the podcast. Um, he's got some legitimate mental issues that have popped up afterwards, and it took him a while to get the right diagnosis and get the right care. But to your point, you look at him, and you can't tell he's a veteran, let alone a, a wounded warrior that came home with some serious things that he's got to work through with his family, yeah. even to this day. So it, it it's just a... I don't know. Interesting perspective. Everybody brings something else to the table. Well, Charlie, we're, we're, we're so lucky to have you here today. You are Werner's longest serving 
veteran, um, you know, here here at Werner today, and uh, we're we're so proud to have you here and on the podcast. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, how did you get look hooked up with Werner? Um, you know, tell us that story. Well, again, we're going to go back to my high school friends, <laughs> a kid that graduated a year before I did at Dakin High School. Uh, I was in a class of nine. <laughs> nine. <laughs> we can all read and write. Wow. <laughs> but anyhow, he was driving a truck for Warner at that time, and I run into him out in Laramie, Wyoming, and uh, we got to talking, and, and I told him how I had this dream of buying a truck. I'd like to buy a truck, be an owner-operator. And he talked me into coming to Warner. Well, I never owned a truck before that. I was 26, 27 years old. And so I did, I was able to buy a truck and, uh, and lease it on at Warner. And so that's how I got started here as an owner operator in 1976. I, I had no idea you came with a truck and owned yeah, a I truck. Didn't know, I didn't know that story either. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I got the truck from Kenworth uh, over in Des Moines, Iowa, and I paid $40,940 for it. My truck payments for 48 months were $1,038.03. It's amazing the numbers that stick in your head. You you mentioned off a of few of your buddies that are, you still don't know their names, that sergeant that asked you about the Purple Heart, you know exactly what your truck payment was. And this is in 1976. This was 46 There's plus the Air years Force ago. Man. <laughs> I did it before I walked in here, just to be clear. I did pull a calculator out. That's crazy, Charlie. Well, uh, it, it, first of all, it was my money, so you yeah. doggone right. I knew what <laughs> you know, I know how much my first house payment was, too. That's <laughs> sure. awesome. So, but, Kenworth? Yeah, Kenworth, cab over Kenworth, 156-inch wheelbase. And, cab, uh, cab over. Cab over. And uh, so, anyhow, I've got a great big picture, probably three foot by two foot of that truck at home. And Chris Polenz asked me recently, he said, send me a picture of your favorite truck. When the one I was looking for was my very last one because it was an all-decked-out W900KW. And uh, I got to thinking about that. You know my favorite truck? It's really the one I got started with. Because really? it wasn't for that truck, I wouldn't have had that other truck. Yeah. And so that was, that was my pride and joy. I put almost a million miles on that thing and uh, sold it to uh, Gene White, uh, who was, at, prior to that, was our serviceman here in the, in the shop in the maintenance area. And Gene was starting his own trucking business. I sold it to him for $16,000. How long did you have it before you sold it? Uh, seven years. Okay. That's yeah, 969000 on it, I think, when I sold that. So. <laughs> it's phenomenal. What are the three most important things that you want to pass on to, to the drivers that are out on the road today for Warner? Well, I get asked that quite frequently, and... I think my most common answer is obviously hard work. I mean, you have, you have to work. And when you think you're getting ahead, you still have to work. Uh, you know, uh, first sergeant over in uh, Vietnam, when I got my sergeant stripes, he asked me, he said, Endorf, he said, you, you made your sergeant stripes. He said, you worked hard to get them, didn't you? And I said, yeah. He said, let me tell you something. You're going to work harder to keep them. And I found that to be an effective thought in what I was accomplishing at that time. So, you know, work hard, manage, manage, and manage your time, 
manage your time, deliver on time, do all those things, manage your money. Because I often tell guys, as an owner-operator starting out, you might get a, a couple thousand dollars ahead in your checking account that you typically never saw. Don't think of yourself as rich. You're poor. You're broke. Because there's something out there that's going to grab that 2000 bucks and run with it. You can make all the money you want, but if you don't manage it, you're, you're, you're doomed. And, and again, hard work, persistence. When did you have the truck stop named after you? Was that 2015, 2016 time frame? 14, 14? 2014, yeah. Okay. And that's in York, right? Yep. Still one of my favorite places to stop. I can't drive by it without stopping and telling the story because it's a cool story, right? Yeah. I n- I probably will never have a truck stop named after me. Uh, and to get to share in some of that history, especially when I have my six-year-old with me who loves trucks and everything to do with it, it's just uh, a cool thing. Well, I think what's really cool about it, guys, is is uh, usually when you get something named after you, you're dead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I beat that timeline. But so, do you ever walk in there and just see if anybody <laughs> recognizes you? Well, obviously not anymore now because I've I've off the road. But my last driving stint, I was running back and forth across eighty. So I made it a practice to stop in there and eat breakfast. Uh, I didn't hardly know anybody from the trucks, uh, the fuel side of it, things, because that wasn't one of our accounts. But uh, the, the girls in the cafe, I got to know them all by first name. And, and uh, so developed a friendship that way. I've been back several times since this last four years, and there's still a couple of them yet that work there. But what's neat about the thing is at the time when I got that honor, I didn't think much about it. And as time has went by over the years, um, living in Fairbury, only 65 miles from there, people will approach me at uh, church maybe one morning, hey, I was in your truck stop yesterday. <laughs> and, and that actually means more to me sure. now than it did at the time when I was awarded that honor. But uh, that, was, that was pretty neat, yeah. Well, now that you've uh, transitioned out of driving, you know, wh- wh- do you ever, do you know, do you look around, do you find yourself saying, gosh, I miss some of that uh, windshield time or alone time on the road to myself or, or how do you manage that? Well, Greg, uh, good question, <laughs> because uh, this might be hard to believe, but when I got out of that truck, I was done with it. Mm-hmm. I don't hate trucks. I mean, trucks made my life what it is today, but I just, you do it for so long you just get burned out. And uh, not to be negative in any way, I don't care if I ever sat in a truck again. Mm. I uh, I drove one down to the Sarpy County Fair with my grandson this last August. That was kind of neat, but I told Chris, I said, you know, <clears throat> I've never driven an automatic transmission. So he had me come up here and do some practice driving with an automatic. <laughs> Hell, it's just like my car. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was that was odd. <laughs> And well, we like now the, have the inverse in our fleet. We have drivers yeah. that never seen a manual have never seen a manual transmission. Yeah. Um, as you retire today, you know what's the one thing that you're going to miss most about your time here at Warner? The people. Uh, met so many uh, friends and relationships for 40 years. You know, there's not many left here. Hardly any left here from from way back, but. You know, we had dinner last night, and we talked about some of those names that aren't here anymore. Matter of fact, a good amount of them are even passed on. 
but uh, the people, I, I've just so many people in this company have been so good to me. Uh, something that I, I really want to say, I, I hope other people in the office can hear this, but when I would walk down the hallway in this building and I would be facing somebody and get that eye contact from the other person, I knew that they knew who I was. And so I always made it an effort to say hello, hi, how are you, some recognition. And I, I did that for the sole purpose because I knew that, you know, I've, I've been put in a position that probably partly luck, some hard work, I guess, I don't know, but uh, I am well known in the company and, and I would, would not make myself or the, anybody that, you know, I just, you have to be nice to people. Clarence Warner told me one time, the only way you're gonna get any respect in this world is start by showing some. And I think we all fall short in that area. But the, the people that, that have made visits with me, uh, you know, they, they walk up to me and sometimes I don't even know who they are. And I had a visit this morning in the cafeteria with somebody. I couldn't, couldn't spit the name out. But I've, I've always appreciated that. And the people in this company have been nothing far short of great. They just everybody. I don't care. Uh, even my problems with the safety department over the years. Hey, hey now. <laughs> hey now. Absolutely. Let's talk more about that. Uh, well, let's go this way. Clarence Warner was uh, uh, introducing me at the lodge one night here several years ago. And he referred to me as his Charlie Endorf, a five million mile driver. And he says, and I'm sure that most of those miles came before we had electronic logging. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just nodded. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the safety department, you know, we have to have them. We, we would just, we wouldn't be where we was at without them. And as much as we argued back and forth, and, and that's what they always were, just arguments, and which I usually lost, but I, I got to show my way anyhow. <laughs> so like uh, Jim Mullen said in a text to me the other night, he said, uh, Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. <laughs> but no, I again, the people. Uh, I've been treated so well by even the phone operators. They know who I am when I call. I guess the voice recognition must do it for them. But there's not a soul here. I walked over to the maintenance uh, shop this morning, and I'm welcomed there by a couple of guys that knew who I were, and we had a good visit. And it's, that, that's the hard part about all of this is, you know, I'm not going to put everybody out of my life because I want to come back and visit once in a while. But, uh, and I have that right and privilege, and I'm, I'm going to keep relationships open. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, Charlie, like I said, you're, you're Warner's longest serving, uh, veteran and, you know, as an army vet, I want to thank you for your service. Um, you know, I know, uh, the seventh infantry and the old, old reliables, and I appreciate the service and your, your sacrifice, uh, during the years of Vietnam. And, and I wanted to say thank you for that. Uh, you know, and just appreciate the chance to sit, sit down this morning and visit with you, uh, learn more about your story and, and just take the opportunity from the organization side to say thank you. Thank you for the 5.3 million accident-free safe miles, um, and we are a better company for you being here. Well, I thank you very much, Greg and Adam, too, but uh, I, I do want to say this. Uh, none of this 
would be possible without God. Uh, how many times that man <coughs> woke me up from falling asleep, tapped me on his shoulder, get back on your side of the road. How many times I got so close to missing something that I never hit. Yeah, you know, I don't look at myself as any better than anybody else. I'm luckier than most. And that's exactly what it is. Amen. Thank, amen is right. Amen. Yep. Thanks for everything, Charlie. You betcha. Yeah, absolutely. Enjoy your retirement. Well deserved. Well, I'm I'm gonna try. Okay. <laughs> Just hope I live long enough to do it. <laughs> Charlie, what what's the what's a message? It doesn't have to be the message or the number one message, but what what's one message that you'd like to convey to professional drivers here at Warner Enterprises? And what's one message you want to convey to the office associates or non-driver associates here at Warner Enterprises? Well, that's going to be hard to do in less than 25 words. <laughs> but the drivers, uh, talking to drivers for the last four years on the phone, and I have the ability to have good discussions with these drivers because I've got the jargon. I was a driver. I can talk like one. Mm. And so I think I mesh in well with the drivers. And, and what I hear is... Uh, we got guys that, that want to be truck drivers. They want to be owner-operators. Uh, I don't know that they have the work ethic um, to, to be successful at either one of those things. Uh, I, I think most people don't understand uh, the amount of work that it takes to be successful. And I'm not saying I'm a great success story, but I'm not a failure. But as, as far as driving... Uh, have a goal in life. And my goal was never to reach a million or two million miles. My goal was to get through the day. Somebody asked me one time, uh, how, do you, how do you do that? And I said, well, the reason I didn't want to have an accident because it was going to cost me money. I was an owner-operator. If I have a wreck, the truck's down, I'm not making any money, and I'm spending money on the truck in the shop. So it was about saving money. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily saving lives. It was saving money. But because of that, I was fortunate enough to not have that accident, and I never hurt anybody. But it comes one day at a time. It, I never dreamt of having this kind of record all the years that I was here. Never, never thought about it. And so it just happened. By showing up to work every day took me... 36 years to, to get that. Uh, that's a long time. I didn't think it was, but it was. And so to the office help, I would say I, I, wished, I wished I could wave a magic wand and, and change a lot. But what I sense in my conversations with drivers from the office side, so many of them will say, well, well the office doesn't know anything like what's out here. You know, it's, they don't have a clue. You know, they're home every night. They eat meals. They sit at their table. And I often come back and say, you know, you can say that, but do you understand what it's like to sit in front of a computer for nine hours a day with four screens looking at you and then somebody tapping you on the shoulder and asking a question about this or that? It's, it's very complex. And you don't understand that side of it. You say they don't understand you. Well, you don't understand them. But I wish we could get back. And, and I'm going backwards here. 
But we used to communicate verbally, not emails, not text messages, not tablets, not Qualcomm's. We talked. And that has really seemed to go away. And I, I would encourage all office people, if you get a chance to talk to a driver, take that extra two or three minutes. Ask him about his wife, his kids. You know, where do you go to church at? What's your interest? Be personal. So that should uh, wrap up our Vet Voices podcast here for Warner Enterprises team. Thanks so much for listening today. The brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces and our allies all over the world, we salute you. Make sure to buckle up and drive safe out there.